Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, if I haven't met you, my name's Josh, and uh, it's a joy to gather with you this morning. Um, if you're new with us, extra welcome. We'd love to connect with you. There should be a, a little connect card you can rip off the bottom of your bulletin that you got, and uh, you can fill that out. Just leave it on the, the pew when you leave. We'd love to follow up, get to know your story, and uh, invite you into our family a little bit. Well, one sneaky suspicion I have about how God works is that I think he calls the people who need the most help to be pastors. Uh, no offense, Todd, speaking for myself. But uh, just, just, think, just think about the, the math on this one. You guys can come in, sit under the word for 30 or 40 minutes, uh, and think about it and move on. But God decided that I need like 10 to 15 hours a week like being worked over by his word in, in, in my work week. He's like, Josh, you just, you're a little slow. You need a little extra time. And this, this phenomenon played out uh, probably most intensely when I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount years ago. It's just three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's the, the longest, kind of most robust, one-stop shop of uh, the teachings of Jesus that we have about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And uh, I spent like seven months preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, it was like 30-some sermons, and uh, they, they mess me up. <laughs> they, they, I, in many ways, I'm still trying to recover from those, those, those sermons. Uh, the thing that messed me up the most was just how much Jesus seemed to be interested in, in how I lived, how, how I did things. Like, yes, he was concerned about the heart and the inner spiritual experience, but it seemed like in, in these teachings, they're always connected to an external behavioral kind of thing. And I was just undone by this because a, a lot of my experience uh, in church and seminary up to that point, you know, was, was very focused on information and doctrine and the inner stuff and heart devotion. Uh, but here's Jesus getting after my anger, my sexuality, how I speak to people, uh, whether or not I'm willing to forgive people who have hurt me, these really earthy, like daily life kind of things. Um, I don't know if those teachings did any good or if anybody remembers them, but as I said, in many ways, I'm, I'm still trying to, to recover from those months marinating in the Sermon on the Mount. And that season of preaching sent me on a journey. And what, what I discovered was something that had kind of been hiding in plain sight, something that I had heard about all of my life, which is this idea of follow Jesus. But what was new to me in this season of exploring were the real practical ways that I could shape my days and weeks and months around following Jesus, being a, a Jesus follower. And God, in his infinite grace and mercy, draws near to us in the person of Jesus and then calls us to, to be with him, learn from him. Following Jesus, in my experience, it just pierces through so much of the, the spiritual fluff and hubbub and uh, pendulum swinging that we see back in the church. And my main prayer for us this morning is that we'd see how the call to follow Jesus is such good, good news. There is some sting. There's a little bit of, ah, 
yeah, to, to following Jesus. Uh, he has some pretty bold words like, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, all that kind of thing. Uh, but for those who have ears to hear, the call to follow Jesus is the best news you can get. And as uh, Craig read uh, in our scripture text, uh, the first thing Jesus does in his ministry after coming back from being tempted in the wilderness is not to do some big flashy miracle, you know, feed thousands of people to develop some hype and get a following or to do, you know, do, do a, a big impressive healing in front of the important people of the day. But instead, it's as ordinary as just calling some regular folks uh, to follow him. So the three questions we're going to look at this morning are this. Why did Jesus call people to follow him? Why is following Jesus good news? And then we'll look at a couple ways we can follow Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? So let's dive in. To answer the first question, why did Jesus call people to follow him? We need to do a brief history lesson because Jesus was not the first person to call followers. Uh, it, was, it wasn't something that he came up with. It's not original to Jesus. We see evidence of people following a teacher centuries before Jesus in ancient Greece. Most famously, Plato was the follower of, who, of what other philosopher? Anybody? Socrates, nice. Can we be a church that shouts out answers? That would be really fun. Let's, let's do that. That was a really hard one, but you guys were on it. Socrates. Uh, so way before Jesus, people were following teachers. In the first century Jewish culture, it was a key way that education happened, that civilization continued on. The education system of the day began with most boys and girls going to a school that they called Bet Sefer in Hebrew, uh, which is House of the Book where they would be educated in reading and writing and math and probably memorize most of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, so side note, parent, if you're wondering why your 10-year-old is a little unruly, it's probably because they haven't memorized Leviticus yet. So you can start working on that. My kids aren't 10, so I don't have to start yet. I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. And then around age 12, for most kids, they'd be done with schools, done with school. Girls would get married and a, few, uh, a few years later, and boys would then go to apprentice under their fathers in whatever the family trade was, which we see in our text uh, that was read. James and John were fishermen, and they were fishing with their fathers. They left their nets and their father, and they followed Jesus. But if you were advanced in the house of the book, you went on to Bet Midrash, which is house of learning. This is kind of like high school where you'd study the books of history and scripture, prophets, psalms, uh, alongside the adults of the, the community. And uh, after Bet, Bet Midrash, a super elite number of students would then apply and seek to follow a rabbi. A Hebrew word for someone who followed a rabbi was Talmud, or if there's a group of them, it'd be Talmudim. And the relationship between a rabbi and his Talmudim was very close. It was not like getting a, a college degree or seminary degree where you, you come through classes on Tuesday and Thursday, subscribing to your rabbi's YouTube channel or something like that. Being a Talmud of a rabbi was holistic. It was a 24-7 kind of experience where you left your family. You would choose not to apprentice under 
your father in the family business, and you would spend all of your time with your rabbi. You'd eat with your rabbi, travel with your rabbi, do life with your rabbi, all the while learning everything you can. Sometimes he would directly teach you stuff, like teach a lesson, and sometimes you'd just be observing uh, what he did. And the goal of being a Talmud was not to get a degree or a certification or something like that to hang on your wall. It was a very embodied relational goal. If you were a Talmud of a rabbi, your goal was to do three things. Be with your rabbi, become like your rabbi, and then do what your rabbi did. Literally become your rabbi as best as you could. Learn to do all the things that your rabbi did. And this kind of could sound weird to us in our day and age because we, we are a very individual, individualistic culture. We all want to be true to ourselves and live our truth, and we're all special snowflakes uh, that got participation trophy awards, you know, growing up or whatever. At least I did. Um, but that's not actually how humans were wired. Neuroscience, human, develop, human development science all confirm that to be human means that we were wired, we were designed, created to imic, mimic and imitate other people. He de- God designed us to be shaped by the people with whom we spend our lives and so this following model, this being, being a Talmud of a teacher uh, is of, as a way of learning something is, is not something that we, we escape. We're all following something or someone. And here's a very interesting, at least to me, a little bit of Bible trivia. The word Christian is used to describe the people of Jesus three times in all of Scripture. It's used, and it's used in the context in Scripture. It's used by people who don't follow Jesus, just trying to figure out what this new sect of Judaism is. It's like starting to become its own thing, and they need a new word. It can't just be called the, a subset of Judaism. But Talmud or Talmudim, or the Greek word reading the New Testament is mathetes, is used to refer to Jesus' followers 269 times. Biblically, the overwhelmingly primary description of people who love Jesus is Talmudin, or mathetes in Greek. And the English word that would most closely mean the same thing as a first century Talmud is apprentice. Evidence for my description. If you're someone's apprentice, you go to work with them every day. If you were going to be an electrician's apprentice, you would go to work with them, you do what they tell you to do, you'd buy the tools that they tell you you need, you ask questions, watch them very closely, you'd try, like that picture, you'd try your hand doing something while someone told you what you could do better. And the point of apprenticeship is not just to get, become a licensed electrician so you can take a test and get the right questions on how to wire a house, but the apprenticeship is to become an electrician so that you can wire a house yourself and even take on electricians yourself someday. At risk of getting bogged down in semantics, let's spend a little more time about words. What, what English word is most commonly translated as Talmud in our Bibles? Disciple, that's right. And that's accurate. Linguistically, it's fine, depending on how you understand what a disciple is. But I think in our culture, disciple or discipleship uh, has become to be understood as like something optional. Like you can be a Christian when you pray the prayer, and then you can choose to opt in and out of being a disciple. 
I did a Google image search. We didn't have time to put this in the slideshow of just discipleship. And what came up was a bunch of people drinking coffee at a table around their Bibles, uh, which is literally my top three favorite things to do. I love drinking coffee and talking about the Bible early in the morning. But it seems to be limited to that. It's a very specific thing that doesn't seem to capture what the Bible is saying. Sometimes discipleship is understood to be something that happens to you rather than something that you are. Or something, it it can be something that's someone else's responsibility. It's, It's the church's responsibility or it's someone else's job to disciple you, uh, but the word disciple, mathetes, is never used as a verb in scripture. It's always a noun. It's describing a person, an identity of a person. It's a way of life to apprentice yourself to a teacher or to Jesus. So now looking at our teaching text, the, the cultural context, we see that Jesus is doing something very common by presenting himself as a rabbi who would have apprentices. And the four guys that he calls here in our scripture text would have known what he was talking about. Like they, maybe they had friends that they had grown up with that were now, you know, Talmudim of other rabbis. And so they, they, they knew what was going on. This brings us to our second question. Why is following Jesus good news? We see three ways following Jesus is good news. First, in his sales pitch. He has this big, wordy sales pitch. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or your, your Bible might say, I will make you fishers of men. So this call to follow comes with a promise, comes with something that Jesus says he's going to do, which is, which is significant. And what is he promising? He's promising to change them, to make them more and different than they are currently. This is part of the good news of following Jesus is because it comes with the promise that he will change us and make us more than we are right now. Now, some scholars believe the the phrase fishers of men or fishing for people was a common expression in Jesus's day for what traveling rabbis did. They'd show up in a town and preach, and if they hooked anybody, if they got any more followers, then they'd fish for a person. They'd caught caught a, a person. And this would mean that Jesus was offering these fishermen who probably stopped school at age 12 because they didn't even make it to high school, let alone to the uh, Talmudim uh, stage. They, he's offering these guys who quit school at 12 years old to become rabbis themselves. You know, what's cooler, fishing for fish or people? I mean, fish are cool. People need to eat. It was a primary, you know, protein source in this region at this time. But he's offering them a chance to learn to do something so much bigger and far-reaching than what they were used to. Deep in the heart of every human is a desire to matter. It might have been hardened and squashed down to be, you know, hardly there at all anymore. But we're all born with a desire to know that our short life on earth counts for something beyond ourselves. And so I I wonder how much of the epidemic of depression in our day and age stems from how meaningless everything seems, how hard it is for young people to figure out how to contribute to something bigger than themselves. And Jesus calls people to follow him with this promise that he will do something to him. I love how the ESV translates it, I will make you fishers of men. It's not come and, and be fishers of men. He's like, I will do it. I will make you. I will change you. 
You might have seen people in our church uh, who are part of our region ministry wearing shirts or hoodies that say what? Never the same. That's right. I love that. Region is a program where we, have people, we, we help people meet Jesus and learn to follow him. And when you step up to do that, to, to follow Jesus, you will never be the same. And that could be scary or it could be good news. It could be scary if you, if you like the status quo, if you're not looking to change, uh, which is why Jesus says those weird things like, I came, uh, you know, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, or he came to call sinners and not the, not the self-satisfied or the self-righteous or whatever. It's people who, who want to be made new, want to be changed, made into something different. And Jesus' call to follow people, uh, to follow him, uh, is using the same language that we see God having used with his chosen people uh, since the beginning of the story. I think this is really important that Jesus is just stepping in to the family business and calling people. So turn in your Bibles if you want to, or I'll I'll just read it. Uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 uh, through 4. This is the call of Abraham, the very first moment when God is starting to call the people, set aside to be his chosen people. Genesis 12, verse 1 through 4 Listen to see if you hear any similarities. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God called Abraham to leave everything he's ever known, his father's house, his way of life, his business, and go to somewhere yet to be determined. And what is the promise that God makes Abraham? I will make you great. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you to be a blessing to other people. So Jesus, who is God-made flesh, is calling followers as the continuation of what God has done from the beginning. God's from the beginning, God's ways to call people out of what they've known, how they've previously lived, and to trust him, trust his promise to make them great. True significance, true greatness is found in close trusting intimacy with the most significant person of all time, the, the greatest person ever to walk the earth, Jesus. And he will make you a fisher of men. He will make us, all of us, more than we already are. The second way The call to follow Jesus is good news is because it's a call of grace. What did Andrew, Peter, James, and John need to do to earn a spot as Jesus's Talmudim, as his apprentices? Nothing. Jesus didn't give them a test or look at their GPA or have a pull-up competition. They didn't even ask. They didn't even ask to be his followers He just went to normal guys and said, come follow me. The only requirement uh, to to follow Jesus is to trust him enough to say yes. To say, okay, Jesus, I trust your agenda for my life. Every other rabbi in Jesus' day and age would have considered carefully applications and picked the best of the best possible men to become their Talmudim. They would have been rigorously evaluated for their worthiness, but not so with Jesus. It's open to everyone, anyone who wants to lay down their nets and trust Jesus. Men, women, rich, poor. 
and he will make them more than they are, bring them in to the story that God is telling. The third way the call to Jesus is good news is because it's an easy yoke. Listen to how Jesus describes what it means to follow him in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is one of those all-star, cozy, you know, coffee cup, crochet, you know, verses that we love because we all feel weary and burdened. But consider Jesus, he's telling us a way out. He's telling us a way out from feeling weary and burdened. What is the antidote? It's taking his yoke upon ourselves. The antidote, according to Jesus, is in a spa day, a vacation on the beach, or a nap. Those are all great things that I enjoy. According to Jesus, it's to yoke ourselves to him. And what? Learn from him by going to work with him. Learn to carry the burdens and work of life the way he does. To depend on him, the the yoke imagery was two oxen, an older, stronger ox, helping pull and teach a younger, weaker ox how to do it. And most scholars think that yoke in that time was an expression for the teaching and way of life of a rabbi. So Jesus isn't just giving us a cute image. He's describing what his yoke is like as a rabbi, as someone who has a way of life and a set of teachings. And he's describing it as easy and light. And if you look at how Jesus lived in the Gospels, you see what he means. He's never in a hurry, never stressed, never shoveling fast food in his mouth on the way to the next gig. We do see him too busy to eat one time, and what does he do? He shuts it down and gets his disciples into a boat to go for a hike, go to a quiet place. In the midst of jam-packed ministry days, we see him taking naps in the middle of storms, and uh, we see him waking up early after a late night of ministry to go and be alone and pray. Lots of unhurried time around the table, eating good food with friends. And he takes a whole day off each week to rest and be with God's people in places of worship. We've talked about this before, but what is the secret of the easy yoke? According to Dallas Willard, that we can't have the life of Jesus unless we take on the lifestyle of Jesus the life of peace and love and joy and service and rest and all the things that we see in Jesus's earthly life, uh, we we are not available to us unless we try to live, uh, set our lives up to live his lifestyle. Following Jesus, yoking ourselves to him, to learn from him, it's how we find rest for our souls. Our souls were meant for union, intimacy with the God of the universe and following Jesus is how we experience that on the earth. If you ever felt weary or heavily burdened, consider the degree to which you've embraced Jesus's lifestyle. He invites us in grace to be with him, to learn from him. And he's saying that he will, he's not saying, this is important, that he'll take away the work and the burdens of living. He acknowledges that there's work to do and that in this life we will have tribulations, that there are burdens. So instead of giving us an out, he gives us equipment for the work, 
a yoke, helpful ways to deal with the burdens and the labor we already have. And if you've ever tried to teach a child to do something, you understand intrinsically, deeply, profoundly the grace involved in Jesus inviting us to learn from him. I love cooking big breakfasts on my day, day off, and my kids love helping, helping in such a way that it takes way longer, makes a bigger mess, and doesn't taste as good. <laughs> but I love my kids, and I delight to see them learn. And I have a vision for their little lives that someday they'll be able to grow up and make breakfast all by themselves in their own houses with their own kids. That's the, the, the grace of being a kid and being parented, is that there's this patient space, loving space for you to learn and try and fail. So we experience the grace of learning from Jesus like a happy child with her dad learning to crack eggs and getting lots of shells in them and all that stuff. And we're just nestled in the love of the relationship that's based on Jesus's work on the cross. Knowing that we're growing, that we're developing, that, Jesus, that God sees us as a child and delights in who we're becoming. And that brings us to our last question. How do we follow Jesus? I have two things, two hows. The first and most important way we follow Jesus is through our habits. Following Jesus, it comes down to your habits. I mean, honestly, anything you want to do in life comes down to your habits. Consider a, a totally non-spiritual example. If you were going to learn to speak Spanish, what would you have to do? You'd have to do, ad adopt lots of habits and change lots of old habits. You'd have to make time to go to classes, Time to study, practice vocab, time to be with other Spanish speakers or Spanish students to practice. You maybe start listening to Spanish music or watching Spanish movies. And to do all that stuff, like if you have a normal full life and you want to take this Spanish project seriously, you've got to change a lot of habits. You've got to cut out a lot of things you already have done, not because they're bad or anything, just because they're, they're not helping you achieve your goal of learning to speak Spanish. And, no, and, it, and it's intrinsically true that, you know, no one would say, yeah, I'm, I'm learning Spanish if you just like popped into a lecture once or twice a month and never really considered the language any other time of your life. And the same is true for following Jesus. We are learning his way of life. We're learning how to become like him, do what he did, and it's, it's going to take, if we want to take it seriously, a reorientation of our priorities and our habits. Not, we're not doing this to make Jesus love us more, or to earn our way into heaven, but because we want Jesus. We want life with God under his rule, and that gets down into our habits. This is a little bit of a caveat, but wanting to follow Jesus is kind of a big deal. He makes it really clear, like, count the cost. No one starts building a building until they realize they have enough money to complete it. Jesus doesn't want any, any quick yeses. He wants you to count the cost. And maybe as we evaluate what might entail following Jesus, we, we could realize that I don't actually want to do that. I, I'm, I'm good how I am, you know. I'd rather just dabble, pop into a Sunday service for a song or a joke or two in the teaching and have a donut with my friends and call it good. And I'm not making fun of anybody or throwing anybody under the bus because if we're really honest deep down that you just don't really care to follow Jesus or want to change anything about lifestyle or habits, uh, that's a really good, honest self-awareness that I would say is a gift if you have that much space to be honest with yourself. And honesty is so 
helpful. And as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. But a big reason why we're looking at King Jesus in the gospel this whole year is because I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't say, friend, that kind of relationship with Jesus will not save you. The kind of relationship, that kind of relationship will do you no good on judgment day. The only Jesus who can be your savior must also be the Lord of your life. Or to to put a finer point on it, the Lord of your habits. There's no die for our sins, Jesus, who is not also the King of kings and Lord of lords over our entire lives. But on the other hand, if you do desire to follow Jesus, or even if you want to desire to follow Jesus, hopefully that's not too confusing, but maybe there's deep down you want to, but on the surface you're like, I I don't really know. I don't really know. If you want to desire to follow Jesus, then a question to consider is, evaluation of all of our habits is this. Are my habits helping me follow Jesus or are they making it harder to follow Jesus? Guys, we're not talking about like sin. Is this bad? Is this good? Is this allowed? Is God mad when I do it? We're, not, we're so far beyond that because we're trying to get further up and further in to life with God. So we're trying to figure out what, what we can cast off so that we can run to, into life with God. I just want to give you two habits to consider. And probably if you thought about it hard enough, one would be for the younger crowd and the other habit would probably be for the older crowd. The first one is the relationship to your phone. I feel like the common story we hear around our smartphones is, wow, this amazing device is making everything so much easier and better. I can get so much more done. But I think the real story, or at least the story behind that story, is that you and I are 15 years into a worldwide smartphone experiment. And guess what part you and I are in this experiment? We're the lab rats. Like, we don't know as a civilization What's going to happen to us as humans having this digital appendage in our pockets and purses all the time? Like we have infinity. Almost anything you want or need or want to see or read or look at is in our hands. What is that going to do to our brains, our relationships, IRL, in real life, our our attention span and ability to learn and think deeply? There's all these unintended consequences because we're in a very, very brand new season of the digital appendage age. Now, am I saying a phone is a sin? No, I have one. It is helpful not saying that, but just consider some questions with your phone. How long are you on it each day? How do you feel when you aren't using it or you're done using it? How do you feel being without it? You know, oh, it's like my right arm. I don't even know how to get around in the world. Like, is, is that how we want to be? Is that, is that how we, we want to live? And, and the studies are in, guys. Like, it's not, it's not like a mystery. You know, the, the, the effect of the phone on anxiety, depression, all that kind of stuff is, 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 is pretty well established. So consider your relationship to your phone. Is it helping you follow Jesus? Is it helping you become more like Jesus? And the second habit to consider is your news habits. Which, in our day and age, I don't know if we can be honest about this in church, news is like pretty much synonymous with politics. <laughs> I mean, I know your news source is the unbiased one. It's the only one or whatever. Uh, but honestly, there's no such thing as an unbiased news source. Because it, there's no such thing as an unbiased human or human organization. Like, we're not, you know, objective, rational robots. We're emotive, desirous creatures. All of us have an agenda. 
I once worked construction for a guy, and the first day I was at the job site before him, he rolls up, and this, uh, this news talk radio is pouring out the windows of his truck, uh, which I didn't think anything of. But he said he was a Christian, and as we were working together, I asked him uh, where he went to church, and he told me this long story about going to church after church and being frustrated with all of them because none of them addressed politics the way that he ordained was right. There was no church in the entire city of Grand Rapids that got it right politically, so he quit going to church. And that's an extreme example, obviously, uh, you guys are here, so I assume none of you are in, in that, that, far, that far gone into the political rabbit hole or whatever. But what, you know, even though he had grown up in the church and said he was a Christian, what had become more important to him was his politics. And I would propose to you that Jesus did not get crowded out of his heart like overnight. Like overnight, he went from being like an all-in Jesus follower to being like an all-in political person. I, it was little habits over time that eventually eclipsed his devotion to Jesus and his people. Our habits around news and politics are so powerful, so potent, because news and, and, and politics are, are offering an interpretation of reality, a, a definition of good and evil, a, 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 a list of values of what's most important. And if, if I just know political party or news channel is the kingdom of God even Christian ones. <laughs> maybe partially, maybe they have some good things. I'm not trying to get into, into the, the weeds here or, or whatever, but to what degree are the, the nature of what is good and evil, the nature of reality shaped by Jesus or shaped by our news habits? And so consider similar habit evaluation with news. After you're reading the news, you know, do you feel more alive to God and his people? Do you feel more ready to love your neighbor? Do you feel more fear or love? How aware are you of God's goodness? And just consider, is this helping? As we continue in Mark's gospel, we'll pay very close attention to the habits of Jesus. I'm, I'm using different language. Spiritual disciplines is like the classic term or whatever, but spiritual disciplines are really just habits, practices that we see in the life of our King on the earth, and we consider how we can follow him into those habits. Um, if you like a, a head start, um, we've said this before, I'd recommend grabbing this book off our book table. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, and it's just a really helpful unpacking of a lot of the themes we're going to talk about, including four specific habits of Jesus that we will see him do as we go through Mark. So if you haven't grabbed it yet, go ahead and Grab a coffee, grab a copy off the table. Also, I'll throw this out there. If you're into audiobooks, it makes for a good audiobook. So you could listen to it that way. The second way we follow Jesus is through deep community with other Jesus followers. You see this right in our text. He calls two, and then he calls two more. There is never a time that we have where Jesus only had one follower, one Talmud, Talmudim, one Talmud. And when we look throughout the Gospels, we have no record of Jesus ever being one-on-one -on -one with one of his apprentices. The entirety of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's never alone one-on-one -on -one with one of his apprentices. You cannot follow Jesus alone. The whole idea that, you know, spirituality can just be me and Jesus is simply not supported by the Scriptures. If you're introverted, you're like, oh, geez, how, like how much community do we need? Like, don't worry. There's also a lot of space for alone time. 
And Jesus comes for all of us, whether we're extroverted or introverted. He's going to call the introverts into community. He's going to call the extroverts into silence and solitude. All of us, he comes for all of us. There's space to be alone and follow Jesus, but we must be in deep relationships with other Jesus followers. I can't tell you how many times I've come to, you know, my guys feeling frustrated with myself, discouraged, and they don't like walk it away or talk it away, but they say, yeah, you, you've messed up, but look at the steps that you're taking. Look at how far you've come, how much God has changed you since where you were five years, years ago or 10 years ago. They, and then they speak the truth of the gospel, that God's love and favor for me is not based on me batting a thousand each week. They can rehearse the goodness of grace that uh, I'm a follower of Jesus by grace because he's called me in love and made a way for me to know God through his death and resurrection. And the main way here at Carl Road that we create these, try to create these kind of relationships is in our triads, uh, which are gender-specific groups of three people who meet regularly to help each other follow Jesus. Triad partners share life, go over teachings of Jesus, look at the habits of Jesus, and just help us be present to God and his love as he's changing us throughout our lives. And so if you're not in a triad already, I invite you to, to sign up. You can fill out the uh, connect card at the bottom of your bulletin and leave it on the pew. Just mark that you want to join a triad. The plan is to launch a few new triads in March. So it's a good time to get on the list and get ready. And uh, I also threw this out there, similar to what I was talking about uh, with sermons and just <laughs> how much more I learned by having to, to prepare a teaching. One of the best ways to grow is to lead. And so if you've been through a triad and have kind of been dragging your feet and leading one, uh, very few ways help you grow as much as trying to lead other Jesus followers in a triad. So let Amy know if you want to lead, lead one starting this spring. So there's just two things to consider, your phone and news. We could go through all kinds of aspects of just everyday normal life rhythms and, and ask, like, how could, we, how could we optimize this or align this so that we can follow Jesus more? But guys, the cry of my heart is that we'd hear this good news to follow Jesus. It's been such good news to me. Ever since that, that moment where the Sermon on the Mount kind of broke me, this, this reorienting of my life around following Jesus practically, it's just made life make so much more sense. I'm not trying to like, you know, tie a bow on or say I've never been sad or overwhelmed or confused or whatever. But the story that I'm living out of isn't like, I can't believe I sinned again after all Jesus has done for me. Why? What's wrong with me? Why aren't I further along? Instead, I see that I'm an apprentice of the king covered by grace, loved by my father who delights to see me learn and grow and lean into his teaching and lifestyle. He's not mad at me, but he wants me to yoke myself to him. He wants me with him. And, and as, I, I, if I could testify, as I've yoked myself to Jesus in his habits, sin becomes less and less appealing, less and less tempting. I mean, just a thought exercise. When you're rushing around, overextended, feeling like you're doing nothing well, and just this low-grade guilt and shame, how easy is it to start bashing someone else? Like, you just need some kind of pick-me-up. At least I'm not like that guy or whatever. Slander, gossip, all that stuff is so tempting when we're, when we're not healthy. But if we're resting, if we're abiding, abiding in God's love over our life, it's so much easier to, to, to see others charitably, to show grace to ourselves and others. We have space in the way of Jesus to taste and see that God is good 
And in that place, the, the, the things of the world grow straight, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for this gracious call from our King Jesus to, to follow him, to be yoked to him. Praise you for uh, just the, the work that Jesus did to make a way for us to uh, come to you, to see this as good news, to awaken our hearts to the, the fact that we're not right, that we need help, we need to be taught how to live. Father, I pray uh, in the name of Jesus that you would uh, just awaken our hearts to want to follow, uh, follow him. I pray against any condemnation, any shoulds or oughts, uh, any sense of guilt, but instead just this good news uh, to cast off things that distract us and run after Jesus so that we could experience the life that he died, the full life he died for us to, to have. Be with us as we come to the table as a church family. Bless this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.